0: Before I get us into the text from today's teaching, which for some of you will be very familiar, I wanted to tell you a story from one of my professors at Fuller Seminary, which is where I just graduated from. Um, he would always say, fake it till you make it. Like whatever you've got that's going on, you just put that behind you and you just power through and whatever it is that you have, put your, put your best self forward. Um, my dad always used to say, never let him see a sweat. That was his motto, and that's pretty true. Like, I've never seen dad anything but the eternal optimist. I am very much not that. Uh, The adage, fake it till you make it, does not ring true with me. I just want to be honest, and I just want to be transparent with everyone at all times. And sometimes I find myself getting into trouble with that sort of openness, because it's strange for you from a pastor. But I just want to be very candid with you that over the last week or so, it's been difficult. Uh, A few of us were able to... Drive to Ohio. Uh, we left yesterday at 5 a.m. Drove to Ohio to go to the memorial service for Doug's mother-in-law, and we were able to be there for a couple hours. Then we jumped back in the car and we drove back home. So I'm working on like sleep deprivation and also just me being overly emotional as a person. So I have no clue what you guys are in for. Um, I would not call tonight a sermon so much as I would call it a reflection on scriptural teaching so I just want to prepare you and I'm really going to be trusting that the spirit will show up and guide us into all truth and hopefully we leave here changed and empowered and convicted and just hungry I'm tired physically but also uh, I'm tired of playing the game and jumping through the hoop and not not making a difference And I want us collectively just to be inspired by the words of Scripture to really dig in and figure out what we're being called to do for the sake of Christ. And I think sometimes we misunderstand what that means. I'm not talking vocationally necessarily, but I am talking about just you and your everyday life and the people that are in your sphere of influence, how you can meet their needs, how you can demonstrate who Jesus is in a radical way in a way that completely destroys all of the caricatures that we may have seen or may have heard or may have accepted for ourselves. And we can present a Jesus who is real and tangible and good. This is Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse one. It says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The Word of God for the people of God. So this reflection around Mark chapter 11, I just really want to bring three things to the fore. Uh, The first thing that a couple of them are kind of nerdy, so just kind of deal with me. We're gonna dip into the Apocrypha tonight, which is always an exciting time, okay? Um, the first thing just about this text and, and what's happening here is Jesus is making a calculated political and theological statement. A lot of times um, we might just think that he's hopping on a donkey and riding into town, uh, but there was so much importance for this ancient audience in this event. This was not just a random happening. This was something that was very calculated, and Jesus had planned this down to the T. All throughout the beginning chapters of of Mark, what's, what's interesting is we see Jesus telling people specifically, don't tell anyone who I am. Like when Jesus heals people in the, in the early chapters, this was Jesus healing a leper in, uh, towards the end of chapter one. It says, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. See that you don't tell what happened to you to anyone, but instead go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Don't start anything yet this thing that just has completely changed and transformed your life. And this guy in this particular, just having leprosy and whatever skin disease that was, he was ostracized, he was pushed out of the community and Jesus touches him, perhaps for the first time in, in, in some time when this man was feeling physical contact. And he says, don't, don't go and tell anyone this, but instead go and do what you need to do to re-enter into society. A few chapters later in Mark chapter eight, it says, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and this was that healing uh, of the blind man in the beginning of, of, of Mark chapter eight, uh, where it's, it's initiating this, this call to discipleship, and we've been looking at that over the past few weeks. It says, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village, just go home. Don't start anything, don't say anything, just, just go when Peter announced who Jesus, who his, who his identity was uh, with, with Jesus and the other disciples, Jesus was asking, who do people say that I am? And then he turns the question and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the one that we've been waiting for, even though Peter's idea of what that meant was all jacked up. What he wanted Jesus to do was not to ride in on a a colt necessarily, but to ride in on a white horse and completely get rid of the, the oppressors and the powers that be. And Peter had this kind of strange understanding of what Jesus would do. But Jesus says in the midst of this, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him because if they did, it would have potentially started a political insurrection. Jesus saying, do not go and tell people who I am, not yet. In Mark chapter 9, as they were coming down the mountain, this is after the transfiguration where Jesus is on, on the mountain with his, his closest disciples, and Elijah and Moses show up in this really strange sort of uh, glowing Jesus uh, episode. He says, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Be quiet. As these things that you're seeing, these things that I'm doing, just kind of keep them to yourselves because the time is not right yet. And then we enter into Mark chapter 11, and everything turns. Jesus says to his disciples, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt that's tied there, which no one has ever ridden. I've got to tell you this side note. Sometimes people can jack the Bible up. Sometimes I'm guilty of that too. One of the teachings that I have heard on this passage is Jesus wanted a colt that no one had ever ridden before brand new brand spanking new so the line from the pastor was Jesus rode a colt that's never been rode you should drive a car that's never been drove pray big and get that beamer Sometimes people can jack up the Bible, okay? And I'm not above that, so I would, I would entrust you guys to have your Bibles open, to be following along, to be asking good questions. Uh, you won't hear that from me because it's not necessarily consistent with any sort of teaching elsewhere in the Bible. Yes, God does want to bless you, but that not what happening, that's not That's not what is happening in this text. But Jesus is trying to um, initiate a very calculated political and theological Moment in his life, and this is very different from, don't tell anybody yet, this is, guys, we're going into Jerusalem, and we're going in with a bang. Get me a donkey. <laughs> and he says, when they go in, people might ask you, and if they do ask you, say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back to you shortly. So, some people are are. D- Not decided on whether Jesus knew exactly what was going to play out or if Jesus had actually planned this event with people in this town. The Gospel of Mark is structured in such a way where Jesus has been in Galilee in the north and now he's finally entering into Jerusalem. But in other Gospel accounts, we see Jesus interacting with the people of Bethany and the surrounding area. So some people have wondered if Jesus has arranged this. And when the people show up, it's like they give him a code word and they say this line, like, oh, okay. It's on, the code word. However you want to think through what's happening here, Jesus wants this donkey to ride to town on. Now, for an ancient audience, this was not just happenstance. First of all, when you go into Jerusalem, this was, um, this was feast time, this was Passover time. You do not ride an animal going in, you walk in. So Jesus showing up on an animal was like, flags going off everywhere for these people they also had the old testament seared into their brain most of these ancient israelites would have known these texts there's one prophetic text in the book of zechariah chapter 9 that says rejoice greatly daughter zion shout daughter jerusalem see your king comes to you righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey more specifically on a colt, the foal of a donkey I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. These people had this moment seared into their brain where the king, the climactic and final Davidic king would jump onto a colt of a donkey and ride into town. Victorious, as people do when they're riding donkeys. I just have this image of, you know, the people in the Grand Canyon on the mules, and they're just kind of, I mean, there's not much victorious or glorious about that. Um, so, okay, side note. In my mind, I'm like battling. Do I tell this story? Why not? Uh, the one time I've ridden horses, I had a horse named RS, and RS was like, Was a slow, a slow animal. Like everybody was kind of going, and they were riding on the beach and running. And me and RS were just kind of back in the back. So I think about me and RS as Jesus is jumping onto this colt. Insert your own humorous horse stories there if you'd like. Um, But these people would have known. These people would have known. This was a symbol, a symbolic act that meant something. Huge was happening. This is similar to something that had happened 175-ish years prior to this. The story surrounding um, <coughs> Judah Maccabee and this, uh, this oppression that was felt back in 200-ish BC at the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes. And the Jewish people were kind of penned in. What Antiochus Epiphanes had done, he was a Syrian ruler who had basically taken Torah or the law and totally destroyed it. He had taken... Um, bad sacrifices and completely desecrated the temple. He had taken everything that was important and holy to the Jewish people at this time and completely destroyed it. But there was one family that said, not on my watch. So what happened is they started this little rebellion. They went to the hills. They kind of got all their materials together, and then they began to uh, wage war against Antiochus Epiphanes and what, how this culminates is um, Judah Maccabee, what happens is he destroys this, this foreign uh, oppressor and actually takes back the temple. And this is the story from 2 Maccabees. It says, They purified the sanctuary and made another altar of sacrifice. Then, striking fire out of flint, they offered sacrifices. After a lapse of two years, they burned incense and lighted lamps and set out the bread of presence. So what's happening is they're going back to the temple because they finally can because the foreign oppressors are not there anymore. They are claiming, reclaiming their religious roots. And what this looks like is, as they go back in, it says they were bearing ivy-wreathed wands and beautiful branches and also fronds of palm. I had to Google fronds. It's just like a a leafy branch. They offered hymns of of, of thanksgiving to him who had given success to the purifying of his own holy place, what's happening is Judah Maccabees is, is leading people in and they're waving palm branches and he's going into Jerusalem to reclaim this holy city. A similar thing happens in First Maccabees 13, which is this is after Judah Maccabee, his brother, I believe, Simon. Same thing, they go back into Jerusalem and the Jews entered with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments. For an ancient Jewish audience, when they saw Jesus going in on a donkey and the palm branches and all this sort of thing, they would have identified him as the new ruler. This was not just Jesus jumping on a donkey and trying to put on a show. This was Jesus very calculated saying, I am exactly who you think I am, but the way that I'm going to establish my kingdom is different. No more was he saying, Don't tell anybody about me. Now he was saying, Let's put on a show. Let's start what it is that I came to finish. This is, as one scholar would say, a carefully choreographed street theater. This is what prophets did. They did sign acts. They demonstrated truths that were happening in ways that were tangible. This is not just Jesus jumping on a donkey and going into town. This is Jesus proclaiming that he's the guy in Zechariah 9 that everyone has been waiting for. He's the guy that will establish God's kingdom and put the world to write once again. The second thing that we see in the story is the crowd. They seem to understand Jesus' message here in this passage because, as N.T. Wright notes, you don't spread cloaks on the road, especially in the dusty, stony Middle East, for a friend or even a respected senior member of your family. You do it for royalty. Further, you don't cut branches off of trees or foliage from the fields to wave in the streets just because you feel somewhat elated. You do it because you are welcoming a king. When you leave here tonight, and you get this palm branch, which you can fashion into this nice, very very chic cross. This is one palm, and I believe that Tessa put this together. Kudos to you. It looks very nice. Okay, it was Dory. My apologies. It still looks very nice. I believe Tessa taught Dory how to do it, but either way, I mean, give credit where credit is due. Looks good. Um, what this symbolized at the time was not just some cutesy little thing that we give you as you leave. This was a sign of kingship this was a sign of the things that are happening in this town they're they're nothing compared to this person that is now proclaiming himself to be the one that we've been waiting for and these people demonstrate the fact that they begin to get it by saying hosanna which means save us please save us Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. This is what people have been waiting for and anticipating. Remember last week when blind Bartimaeus was describing Jesus as the son of David. That was a very politically charged title. And now they're entering into the capital city with Jesus as this Davidic king. I've often heard that it's the same group that says, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, that a few days later are shouting, crucify him, kill him. We don't want him. We want this other person to be freed, and we want Jesus to die. Some scholars have pointed out, though, that this crowd that's following Jesus has been with Jesus from the north. They've come down with him. A few weeks ago, Jesus is out front, and he's got his disciples right behind him, and then there's a a larger group of disciples that are following, and they're all kind of going to this same place, and they're beginning, as Jesus rides this donkey into town, they're taking off their cloaks, they're putting it on the ground. This donkey is walking over these coats because they want to demonstrate the royalty and the kingship of Jesus while people are in Jerusalem that would judge, that would disagree, that would oppress It seems like there's two rival groups here, one that's the pro-Jesus group and one that's the anti-Jesus group, and they're kind of at war. It's not just somebody that's so fickle where they say, yes, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and then two days later, no, kill him, kill him, kill him. It's not this complete schizophrenic shift. I think what happens is different And I think what happens is sort of symbolic of the things that we go through where in one instance, as the the confession that we read today said, we can be saying Hosanna, but then when our backs are against the wall, when the stuff hits the fan, fear takes over. And this fear causes us to begin to doubt and to begin to question and to begin to cower where no longer are we proclaiming this is the king, we begin to buy into. I don't want to tell anybody that right now because I don't know if I actually believe it right now. It's not just that these people were fickle, but it seems as though there's two different groups and they're kind of at war, and we, we see how that plays out sometimes even in our own lives. So I don't know that as you sit here and you think about the stories and the situations where you've been, where you've demonstrated yourself to be one who does not have the courage to stand up for Jesus, that doesn't have the courage to proclaim yourself to be a follower of Jesus or to live morally. A lot of times our words are very much dependent upon our circumstances. And I think that what we can learn from this passage is to begin to proclaim, Hosanna, save us now, please, please in whatever situations that we go through. Now, the third thing that's in this passage that I think is probably the most interesting, especially when you compare Mark to the other synoptic gospels and to, to the book of John as well, this ending. So we've got this crescendo where Jesus is like, All right, guys, get me a donkey, because now it's go time. And then he hops on the donkey, and I just picture Jesus kind of side-saddling it on his buddy's, like, coat, and he's, like, riding in. And then he gets in there, and then Mark basically says, And nothing happens. They're riding the donkey, and he's like, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he went around the temple courts, and he looked around at everything. But since it was already kind of late, he just said, Well, I'm going to go home. It's like this big story where... yeah, the king is here, everything's happening, Pro- prophecy is being fulfilled right here in our, in our faces, and this is great, and this is good. But it is dinner time, so I, mean, I guess we should go. This isn't, this isn't how this story plays out in any of the other gospels, and I do not say this to challenge you, and I do not say this to poke holes in how you read scripture. I say this because I want us to be honest about what's in our book, folks. In Matthew and Luke, He rides into town, and then he begins to cleanse the temple. That's his MO. He rides into town, and then he looks around at the temple courts, and it's almost like in the same moment, he walks in, and we see this classic story of Jesus where he starts overthrowing tables and like getting rid of of people. He's ticked at the religious establishment of his day, and it's just creating this indignation in him. And every time I read this story as a kid, I thought, Jesus has a really crazy temper, He's spontaneous. I do too. I am like Jesus after all. And I demonstrate that on the baseball field when a ball goes between my legs or when I strike out with runners in scoring position or when stuff doesn't go my way on the highway when somebody's driving so stinking slow in the fast lane. It's like two people going 50 on route 13 for 15 miles. You're like, come on, that's Jesus in me. Righteous indignation. But what Mark's doing, this is totally different. He's, he's picturing a Jesus and telling the story of he goes into town. And it's not, in my opinion, it's not anticlimactic. He jumps on the donkey. People are throwing down their coats. They're waving palm branches. They're saying, this is the king. This is the guy. Stuff's going down right now with him. And we want to be involved with that. Save us. That's our guy. And they go in, and Jesus gets off the the donkey and looks around. And he realizes that it's late. And I don't think that he goes home because he wants to eat food. I think that he goes home to continue to calculate and continue to count the cost about what it would take for him to make change in the world. Jesus, it says that he goes into this temple courts and looks around at everything. And then he goes home. What do you think that Jesus saw? And what sort of thoughts do you think that Jesus had throughout that night as he goes to, yes, overthrow tables and completely demolish the religious authorities of the day? How dare you? You've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. How dare you? This is not... Jesus with a temper. This is Jesus continuing to be very calculated in what he's doing. This is R.T. Francis. says, what happens in the morning, which is Jesus flipping over tables, will not be a spontaneous act of outrage, but a planned demonstration. And when I think about this story, the thing that I begin to process is Jesus seeing what's going on in the temple. Seeing how people are going in the wrong direction, abusing people, not allowing Gentiles to worship in the way that they deserve to worship, which as we'll see next week is what this passage is sort of about. And Jesus, with his righteous indignation, goes home and plans a moment where he says, not on my watch will this happen. This is not a gut shot reaction from Jesus. This is so calculated and it makes me wonder as we think about our lives as Christians, the way that we demonstrate ourselves to be so complacent when things around us are not as they should be, and how in this story we see Jesus who goes home and begins to think and plan the demonstration, and I wonder, I just wonder, I wonder if we too should be planning, if we too should be saying, not on my watch, The abuses that I see in the lives of my friends, not on my watch. The injustice that I see in people around me, not on my watch. The rampant racism in our own town, the racial tension that is becoming a part of what Salisbury is, not on my watch. The way that we demean and diminish people, not not on my watch. And I wonder, if Jesus is calling us into a moment of following him in whatever way this looks like. The thing that I also, I wonder about this text is when Jesus is so visibly moved, the people that are causing that reaction, it's us. It's the religious leaders of the day and the way that Jesus interacts with the people with leprosy and the people on the outskirts and the margins. It's, it's with grace and it's with compassion. And I wonder if in some small way or maybe even in some big way, we are actually participating in things where Jesus wants to scream at us saying, not on my watch. You've taken everything that's good and you've turned it into a den of thieves. I hope tonight that as we begin to process some of this, this isn't just Jesus jumping on a donkey and riding out and people waving palm branches. I think there's some things that we can take away from this story, and I hope this isn't a reading in. Again, this is just reflections, but first, when we think about our lives, and we see the people that are, yes, chanting Hosanna and the highest. This is the king. This is the one that's doing what he's going to do. And then later we see people that are chanting crucify. him because of the, the crowds and the influence and whatever, are we people that are known by our fear or are we people that can, like Jesus, identify wrongs and through the power of his spirit that is working in us each and every day, can we begin to identify them? And can we as a community begin to right the wrongs on behalf of of the risen Christ. I hope that as we see this passage, we begin to understand Jesus as one who's asking us to count the cost. But beyond that, to begin to ask the questions, what forms of injustice are we participating in and what are the people around us that that need an advocate to say, not on my watch? As we think through the next few days in Jesus' life, I hope that we can take a lot of these things personally and we can understand who we are, who we're called to be, what we're called to do, and how Jesus has completely and utterly shifted who we are by offering himself in sacrifice for our sins. But beyond that, I hope that we can also begin to see the huge, widespread cause of restoration that his life and his death and his resurrection allow us to participate in and I hope that we actually begin to live within that as well.